I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Tonight's two stories are by William Somerset Maugham. Robert Calder's fine biography of Maugham suggests that the central theme in this author's novels is personal freedom and the protagonist's quest to achieve it. The theme can also be found in many of his short stories, but equally important in those stories, it seems to me, is the concern for how to live in an unpredictable, irrational world. Maugham's stories suggest that life is perhaps best met stoically, with skepticism, tolerance, humor, and as much enjoyment as possible of what life offers. A very young and pessimistic Somerset Maugham wrote in his notebook in 1900, The feathery ball of the dandelion, carried away by the breeze, floated past, a symbol of the life of man, an aimless thing, yielding to every breath, useless, and with no mission but to spread its seed upon the fertile earth, so that things like unto it should spring up in the succeeding summer and flower uncared for and reproduce themselves and die. A much older mom, rereading what he had written so many years before, commented, I didn't know then how succulent a salad can be made of this humble herb. The Portrait of a Gentleman by Somerset Maugham I arrived in Seoul towards evening, and after dinner, tired by the long railway journey from Peking, to stretch my cramped legs I went for a walk. I wandered at random along a narrow and busy street. The Koreans in their long white gowns and their little white top hats were amusing to look at, and the open shops displayed wares that arrested my foreign eyes. Presently I came to a second-hand bookseller's, and catching sight of shelves filled with English books, went in to have a look at them. I glanced at the titles, and my heart sank. They were commentaries on the Old Testament, treatises on the epistles of Paul, sermons, and lives of divines doubtless eminent, but whose names were unfamiliar to me. I am an ignorant person. I supposed that this was the library of some missionary whom death had claimed in the midst of his labors, and whose books had then been purchased by a Japanese bookseller. The Japanese are astute, but I could not imagine who in Seoul would be found to buy a book in three volumes on the Epistle to the Corinthians. But as I was turning away, between volume two and volume three of this treatise, I noticed a little book bound in paper. I do not know what induced me to take it out. It was called The Complete Poker Player, and its cover was illustrated with a hand holding four aces. I looked at the title page. The author was Mr. John Blackbridge, actuary and counselor at law, and the preface was dated 1879. I wondered how this work happened to be among the books of a deceased missionary, and I looked in one or two of them to see if I could find his name. Perhaps it was there only by accident. It may be that it was the entire library of a stranded gambler and it found its way to those shelves when his effects were sold to pay his hotel bill. But I preferred to think that it was indeed the property of the missionary, and that when he was weary of reading divinity, he rested his mind by the perusal of these lively pages. Perhaps somewhere in Korea, at night and alone in his mission house, he dealt innumerable poker hands in order to see for himself whether you could really only get a straight flush once in sixty-five thousand hands. 
but the owner of the shop was looking at me with disfavor, so I turned to him and asked the price of the book. He gave it a contemptuous glance and told me I could have it for twenty sen. I put it in my pocket. I do not remember that for so small a sum I have ever purchased better entertainment, for Mr. John Blackbridge in these pages of his did a thing no writer can do who deliberately tries to, but that, if done unconsciously, gives a book a rare and precious savor. He painted a complete portrait of himself. He stands before the reader so vividly that I was convinced that a woodcut of him figured as a frontispiece, and I was surprised to discover, on looking at the book again the other day, that there was nothing of the kind. I see him very distinctly as a man of middle age, in a black frock-coat and a chimney-pot hat, wearing a black satin stock. He is clean-shaven, and his jaw is square. His lips are thin, and his eyes wary. His face is sallow and somewhat wrinkled. It is a countenance not without severity, but when he tells a story or makes one of his dry jokes, his eyes light up, and his smile is winning. He enjoyed his bottle of burgundy, but I cannot believe that he ever drank enough to confuse his excellent faculties. He was just rather than merciful at the card-table, and he was prepared to punish presumption with rigor. He had few illusions, for here are some of the things that life had taught him. Men hate those whom they have injured. Men love those whom they have benefited. Men naturally avoid their benefactors. Men are universally actuated by self-interest. Gratitude is a lively sense of expected benefits. Promises are never forgotten by those to whom they are made, usually by those who make them. It may be presumed that he was a Southerner, for while speaking of jackpots which he describes as a frivolous attempt to make the game more interesting, he remarks that they are not popular in the South. This last fact, he says, contains much promise, because the South is the conservative portion of the country, and may be relied on as the last resort of good sense in social matters. The revolutionary Kossuth made no progress below Richmond. Neither spiritualism, nor free love, nor communism has ever been received with the least favor by the Southern mind, and it is for this reason that we greatly respect the Southern verdict upon the jackpot. It was in his days an innovation, and he condemned it. The time has arrived when all addition to the present standard combinations in draw poker must be worthless, the game being complete. The jackpot, he says, was invented, in Toledo, Ohio, by reckless players to compensate losses incurred by playing against cautious players, and the principle is the same as if a party should play whist for stakes and all be obliged every few minutes to stop and purchase tickets in a lottery or a raffle for a turkey or share a deal in Kino. Poker is a game for gentlemen. He does not hesitate to make frequent use of this abused word. He lived in a day when to be a gentleman had its obligations but also its privileges, and a straight flush is to be respected, not because you make money on it, I have never seen anyone make much money upon a straight flush, he says, but because it prevents any hand from being absolutely the winning hand, and thus relieves gentlemen from the necessity of betting on a certainty. Without the use of straights, and hence without the use of a straight flush, 
four aces would be a certainty, and no gentleman could do more than call on them. This, I confess, catches me on the raw, for once in my life I had a straight flush and bet on it till I was called. Mr. John Blackbridge had personal dignity, rectitude, humor, and common sense. The amusements of mankind, he says, have not as yet received proper recognition at the hands of the makers of the civil law and of the unwritten social law. And he had no patience with the persons who condemn the most agreeable pastime that has been invented, namely gambling, because risk is attached to it. Every transaction in life is a risk, he truly observes, and involves the question of loss and gain. To retire to rest at night is a practice that is fortified by countless precedents, and it is generally regarded as prudent and necessary. Yet it is surrounded by risks of every kind. He enumerates them and finally sums up his argument with these reasonable words. If social circles welcome the banker and merchant, who live by taking fair risks for the sake of profit, there is no apparent reason why they should not at least tolerate the man who at times employs himself in giving and taking fair risks for the sake of amusement. But here his good sense is obvious. Twenty years of experience in the city of New York, both professionally, you must not forget that he is an actuary and counselor at law, and as a student of social life, satisfy me that the average American gentleman in a large city has not over $3,000 a year to spend upon amusements. Will it be fair to devote more than one-third of this fund to cards? I do not think that anyone will say that one-third is not ample allowance for a single amusement. Given, therefore, a $1,000 a year for the purpose of playing draw poker, what should be the limit of the stakes in order that the average American gentleman may play the game with a contented mind and with the certainty not only that he can pay his losses but that his winnings will be paid to him? Mr. Blackridge has no doubt that the answer is two dollars and a half. The game of poker should be intellectual and not emotional, and it is impossible to exclude the emotions from it if the stakes are so high that the question of loss and gain penetrates to the feelings. From this question it may be seen that Mr. Blackbridge looked upon poker as only on the side a game of chance. He considered that it needed as much force of character, mental ability, power of decision, and insight into motive to play poker as to govern a country or to lead an army and I have an idea that on the whole he would have thought it a more sensible use of a man's faculties. I am tempted to quote interminably, for Mr. Blackbridge seldom writes a sentence that is other than characteristic, and his language is excellent. It is dignified as befits his subject and his condition. He does not forget that he is a gentleman. Measured, clear, and pointed. His phrase takes an ample sweep when he treats of mankind and its foibles, but he can be as direct and simple as you please. Could anything be better than this terse but adequate description of a card-sharper? He was a very good-looking man of about forty years of age, having the appearance of one who had been leading a temperate and thoughtful life. But I will content myself with giving a few of his aphorisms and wise saws, chosen almost at random from the wealth of his book. Let your chips talk for you. A silent player is so far forth a mystery, and a mystery is always feared. In this game never do anything that you are not compelled to, while cheerfully responding to your obligations. 
At draw poker, all statements not called for by the laws of the game or supported by ocular demonstration may be set down as fictitious, designed to enliven the path of truth throughout the game as flowers in summer enliven the margins of the highway. Lost money is never recovered. After losing, you may win, but the losing does not bring the winning. No gentleman will ever play any game of cards with the design of habitually winning and never losing. A gentleman is always willing to pay a fair price for recreation and amusement. That habit of mind which continually leads us to undervalue the mental force of other men while we continually overvalue their good luck. The injury done to your capital by a loss is never compensated by the benefit done to your capital by a gain of the same amount. Players usually straddle when they are in bad luck upon the principle that bad play and bad luck united will win. A slight degree of intoxication aids to perfect this intellectual deduction. Euchre is a contemptible game. The lower cards, as well as the lower classes, are only useful in combination or in excess, and cannot be depended upon under any other circumstances. It is a hard matter to hold four aces as steadily as a pair, but the table will bear their weight with as much equanimity as a pair of deuces. Of good and bad luck. To feel emotions over such incidents is unworthy of a man, and it is much more unworthy to express them. But no words need be wasted over practices which all men despise in others, and in their reflecting moments lament in themselves. Endorsing for your friends is a bad habit, but it is nothing to playing poker on credit. Debit and credit ought never to interfere with the fine intellectual calculations of this game. There is a grand ring in his remarks on the player who has trained his intellect to bring logic to bear upon the principles and phenomena of the game. He will thus feel a constant sense of security amid all possible fluctuations that occur and he will also abstain from pressing an ignorant or an intellectually weak opponent beyond what may be necessary either for the purpose of playing the game correctly or of punishing presumption. I leave Mr. John Blackbridge with this last word, and I can hear him say it gently but with a tolerant smile, for we must take human nature as it is. The Ant and the grasshopper. When I was a very small boy, I was made to learn by heart certain of the fables of La Fontaine, and the moral of each was carefully explained to me. Among those I learned was the ant and the grasshopper, which is devised to bring home to the young the useful lesson that in an imperfect world industry is rewarded and giddiness punished. In this admirable fable, I apologize for telling something which everyone is politely but inexactly supposed to know. The ant spends a laborious summer gathering its winter store, while the grasshopper sits on a blade of grass singing to the sun. Winter comes, and the ant is comfortably provided for, but the grasshopper has an empty larder. He goes to the ant and begs for a little food. Then the ant gives him her classic answer. What were you doing in the summertime? Saving your prudence, I sang. I sang all day, all night. You sang. Why, then go and dance. 
I do not ascribe it to perversity on my part, but rather to the inconsequence of childhood, which is deficient in moral sense, that I could never quite reconcile myself to the lesson. My sympathies were with the grasshopper, and for some time I never saw an ant without putting my foot on it. In this summary, and, as I have discovered since, entirely human fashion, I sought to express my disapproval of prudence and common sense. I could not help thinking of this fable when, the other day, I saw George Ramsay lunching by himself in a restaurant. I never saw anyone wear an expression of such deep gloom. He was staring into space. He looked as though the burden of the whole world sat on his shoulders. I was sorry for him. I suspected at once that his unfortunate brother had been causing trouble again. I went up to him and held out my hand. "'How are you?' I asked. "'I'm not in hilarious spirits,' he answered. "'Is it Tom again?' He sighed. "'Yes, it's Tom again.' "'Why don't you chuck him? You've done everything in the world for him. You must know by now that he's quite hopeless.' "'I suppose every family has a black sheep. Tom had been a sore trial to his for twenty years. He had begun life decently enough. He went into business, married, and had two children.' The Ramses were perfectly respectable people, and there was every reason to suppose that Tom Ramsey would have a useful and honorable career. But one day, without warning, he announced that he didn't like work and that he wasn't suited for marriage. He wanted to enjoy himself. He would listen to no expostulations. He left his wife and his office. He had a little money, and he spent two happy years in the various capitals of Europe. Rumors of his doings reached his relations from time to time, and they were profoundly shocked. He certainly had a very good time. They shook their heads and asked what would happen when his money was spent. They soon found out. He borrowed. He was charming and unscrupulous. I have never met anyone to whom it was more difficult to refuse a loan. He made a steady income from his friends, and he made friends easily. But he always said that the money you spent on necessities was boring. The money that was amusing to spend was the money you spent on luxuries. For this he depended on his brother George. He did not waste his charm on him. George was a serious man and insensible to such enticements. George was respectable. Once or twice he fell for Tom's promises of amendment and gave him considerable sums in order that he might make a fresh start. On these, Tom bought a motor-car and some very nice jewelry. But when circumstance forced George to realize that his brother would never settle down, and he washed his hands of him, Tom, without a qualm, began to blackmail him. It was not very nice for a respectable lawyer to find his brother shaking cocktails behind the bar of his favorite restaurant, or to see him waiting on the box-seat of a taxi outside his club. Tom said that to serve in a bar or to drive a taxi was a perfectly decent occupation, but if George could oblige him with a couple of hundred pounds, he didn't mind for the honor of the family giving it up. George paid. Once Tom nearly went to prison. George was terribly upset. He went into the whole discreditable affair. Really, Tom had gone too far. He had been wild, thoughtless, and selfish but he had never before done anything dishonest, by which George meant illegal, and if he were prosecuted he would assuredly be convicted. But you cannot allow your only brother to go to jail. The man Tom had cheated, a man called Cronshaw, was vindictive. 
He was determined to take the matter into court. He said Tom was a scoundrel and should be punished. It cost George an infinite deal of trouble and five hundred pounds to settle the affair. I have never seen him in such a rage as when he heard that Tom and Cronshaw had gone off together to Monte Carlo the moment they cashed the check. They spent a happy month there. For twenty years Tom raced and gambled, philandered with the prettiest girls, danced, ate in the most expensive restaurants, and dressed beautifully. He always looked as if he had just stepped out of a bandbox. Though he was forty-six, you would have taken him for no more than thirty-five. He was a most amusing companion, and though you knew he was perfectly worthless, you could not but enjoy his society. He had high spirits, an unfailing gaiety, and incredible charm. I never grudged him the contributions he regularly levied on me for the necessities of his existence. I never lent him fifty pounds without feeling that I was in his debt. Tom Ramsay knew everyone, and everyone knew Tom Ramsay. You could not approve of him, but you could not help liking him. Poor George, only a year older than his scapegrace brother, looked sixty. He had never taken more than a fortnight's holiday in the year for a quarter of a century. He was in his office every morning at nine-thirty, and never left it till six. He was honest, industrious, and worthy. He had a good wife, to whom he had never been unfaithful even in thought, and four daughters, to whom he was the best of fathers. He made a point of saving a third of his income, and his plan was to retire at fifty-five to a little house in the country where he proposed to cultivate his garden and play golf. His life was blameless. He was glad that he was growing old, because Tom was growing old too. He rubbed his hands and said, "'It was all very well when Tom was young and good-looking, but he's only a year younger than I am. In four years he'll be fifty. He won't find life so easy then. I shall have thirty thousand pounds by the time I'm fifty. For twenty-five years I've said that Tom would end in the gutter, and we shall see how he likes that.' We shall see if it really pays best to work or be idle. Poor George! I sympathized with him. I wondered now, as I sat down beside him, what infamous thing Tom had done. George was evidently very much upset. "'Do you know what's happened now?' he asked me. I was prepared for the worst. I wondered if Tom had gotten into the hands of the police at last. George could hardly bring himself to speak." "'You're not going to deny that all my life I've been hard-working, decent, respectable, and straightforward. After a life of industry and thrift, I can look forward to retiring on a small income in gilt-edged securities. I've always done my duty in that station of life in which it has pleased Providence to place me. True. And you cannot deny that Tom has been an idle, worthless, dissolute, and dishonorable rogue.' If there were any justice, he'd be in the workhouse. True. George grew red in the face. A few weeks ago he became engaged to a woman old enough to be his mother, and now she's died and left him everything she had. Half a million pounds, a yacht, a house in London, and a house in the country. George Ramsay beat his clenched fist on the table. It's not fair, I tell you, it's not fair. Damn it, it's not fair! I could not help it. I burst into a shout of laughter as I looked at George's wrathful face. I rolled in my chair. 
I very nearly fell on the floor. George never forgave me. But Tom often asks me to excellent dinners in his charming house in Mayfair, and if he occasionally borrows a trifle from me, that is merely from force of habit. It is never more than a sovereign. You've been listening to The Portrait of a Gentleman and The Ant and the Grasshopper by William Somerset Maugham. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please tell your friends. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. (laughs) 